IFG people! Hello and welcome to Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Mauricio Magaldi, and this is episode 196. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, the amazing Kai Sheffield, head of Crypto Visa. Kai, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. Doing well. It was an exciting week for us last week, and you know it'll be fun to, to unpack some of the news today with some you know, fantastic guests and partners of ours. Absolutely. So following our discussion around the development of stablecoins in our last episode, we thought it would be fitting to dive deeper into another type of digital currency that is close related to fiat, CBDCs, or central bank digital currencies. Today, continuing the conversation from last week, we're going to dive deep into the difference between stablecoins and CBDCs and ultimately what a future with CBDCs could look like and some very special news from Visa. Uh, we put together a very special panel of guests to discuss this. So we welcome back to the show Dante Desparte, Chief Strategy Officer and Head of Global Policy at Circle. Welcome to the show, Dante. Great to have you with us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please, for those who haven't heard of Circle and you? Thank you. No, it's always good to be back on, Mauricio and, and uh, Kai. The, um, so I'm Circle's uh, Chief Strategy Officer and Head of Global Policy. Uh, Circle is the issuer of a digital currency known as USDC, which is a dollar-backed stablecoin. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that during the, the conversation today. And we're providing a whole host of additional technologies around abstracting away the use of these innovations across open public blockchain infrastructure. Uh, so very exciting, uh, very exciting developments in this market. Thank you. So welcome to Mina Katak, Senior Director of Crypto at WorldPay. Thanks for joining us today, Mina. How are you? And tell us a little bit about yourself too, please. Doing well. Thanks for having me, Mauricio. Um, so I'm Mina. I lead WorldPay's crypto and Web3 growth team. So those include our strategy, go-to-market, and partnership functions. WorldPay is one of the world's largest payment processors, and we've been in the crypto space since 2015. Prior to my time at WorldPay, I was a management consultant at McKinsey & Company, and I'm excited to be here. Welcome to the show. And certainly, last but not least, we welcome Catherine Gu, Head of CBDC and Protocols at Visa. It's a pleasure to have you, Kat. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I guess, uh, so I lead on Visa's effort to do with CBDCs as well as protocols. My foray into crypto and blockchain started when I was at Stanford, and uh, it's really through some of the classes I took with Professor Dan Benet and Tim Rothgarden that really changed my life and got very deeply involved into the crypto space. Lots of fascinating things. I joined Visa in 2020 under Kai's team, so really covering a lot of the strategies around how Visa should be responding to all these emergencies of new digital currencies, whether that's stable coins, central bank digital currencies, or the new emergence of tokenized deposits. And we now have a different team, which is really focused on looking at protocols and blockchain protocol deeply to understand a lot of the fundamentals to, to make sense of what's happening right now. So yeah. Yeah. Once you're bitten by that bug, <laughs> you never go back, I guess. <laughs> so before we dive in, just as a reminder to our listeners, the views or opinions of our panel are their own and don't necessarily represent those of the companies that they're representing. And as always, nothing we say should be taken as tax, financial, or legal advice. So do your own research. So let's kick this thing off. So we'll dive in a little bit into the history of CBDCs and its recent rise to popularity. CBDC stands for Central Bank Digital Currency, and it's essentially a digital form of money issued, controlled, and backed by a central bank as much as a physical dollar bill, for instance. CBDCs are managed on a digital ledger, 
which doesn't necessarily need to be on a blockchain. They've been in development for a while. And right now, according to the BIS, around 86% of central banks around the world are actively researching or engaged in some form of CBDC. Banks are obviously looking into CBDCs as form of currency to expedite transactions, increase security of payments between banks, institutions, and individuals. Uh, some countries are also developing CBDCs in hopes that it increases uh, accessibility of banking or financial inclusion, as some of those say. So examples of CBDCs that are currently in development are the Bank of England and the HM Treasury uh, that released a consultation paper in the UK for the digital pound earlier this year. The Chinese digital yuan, which has been uh, in trial since the 2022 Winter Olympics. There's a lot of success involved. China is also working on integrating existing payment channels with the digital yuan. And this year, Alipay began offering digital yuan for express payments. So there's a lot of development in that space. Brazil is piloting Drex, which is a wholesale CBDC that involves both the, the digital version of their Real and also tokenized deposits and will launch uh, sometime later in 2024. And there is a discussion of a digital euro, which is currently in its investigation phase for the last uh, two years. And they're about to finish that investigation in October of this year. But obviously, CBDCs aren't the only thing that are making headlines and breaking new ground in digital money. Uh, as we recently discussed about stablecoins, are starting to go mainstream with the launch of PayPal stablecoin, the PYUSD. And of course, our friends at Circle go from strength to strength with their USDC stablecoin, which uh, recently launched uh, with Mercado Libre in Chile. So, and, and that's obviously not all. Visa has got some amazing news in the space too. So last week, Visa expanded its use of the USDC for digital currency settlement, adding pilot programs globally with WorldPay, Nuve, and Sapo following a successful pilot with Crypto.com. This is the next step in modernizing large-value cross-border payments for end-to-end -end digital currency settlement over blockchains. USDC settlement for Visa helps eliminate the need to convert digital currencies into fiat currencies and open up a whole new world for speed and cost savings. So I'm going to kick off with Kai. What can you tell us about more of the Visa perspective about this settlement partnership? How did it came about? How does that build upon the pilot on crypto.com? And what does it mean more broadly for Visa and settlements in general to be coming into the blockchain more generally? Yeah, so we've been closely following the stablecoin ecosystem, experimenting you know, with them for many years now. And I think what we're seeing is, is really early signs of, of product market fit using stablecoins, particularly for large value B2B payments. And so, you know, going into the back end and guts of, of VisaNet and card systems, a lot of people don't realize, you know, when you tap to pay with your card, while it's instantly authorized, you know, we don't have the ability to move that money in real time. You know, we wait till the end of the day. We have to use existing, you know, Fedwire, uh, bank, you know, correspondent networks to actually move the money. And so what we've been experimenting with is, can we offer more options to issuers and to acquirers to be able to send and receive funds on chain using stablecoins like USDC. And so we've been really excited, you know, both to expand how we've worked with Circle and having a Circle business account. And so Visa Treasury now can use a Circle account to send and receive, you know, stablecoins on chain. And then working with leading acquirers like WorldPay. And so to have one of the world's largest acquirers really say, wait a minute, there's some demand for my merchants to receive this currency. 
And how can we make the settlement payments from Visa to WorldPay, you know, over a blockchain in a stablecoin so that they can then make that stablecoin you know, available you know, to their partners? And so you know, it's still very early days, but I think the biggest takeaway is we are actively using these technologies and rails today. We've already moved millions of dollars you know, over them. Uh, and so we think that there's real potential for this infrastructure to be built out and to really speed up you know, large value B2B payments you know, between many of our clients. Although we've talked about stable coins more recently and we have touched upon this space over time, Dante, uh, USDC is certainly one of the large players in this space. So can you share a little bit of you know how that started and also how you know working with Visa has been working for you at Circle and, and with respect with USDC? Yeah, no, first of all, it's uh, great to be back on. And, and I think what, what Kai just starts with is oftentimes people tend to think of the original narrative around crypto and digital assets was that it was going to democratize access to finance and make Wall Street and traditional banking irrelevant. And I think what we could now benefit from is the fact that this is as much an augmenting technology as it may be to some sectors a disruptive one, right? And so that the, the real value added of something like USDC, a trusted digital dollar regulating the United States, it's a five-year-old innovation, battle-tested in many respects through the ups and downs of crypto capital markets and crypto activity, but also, frankly, battle-tested as a payment innovation that people would make accessible and available to millions of end users. You, you mentioned it with the Mercado Libre announcement in beginning in Chile, but with opportunities to expand across Latin America. And obviously, it's completely implied in this integration with Visa and WorldPay that instead of these payment systems being seen as competitive to one another, what you're seeing is that there's clear interoperability and clear connectivity between digitally native innovations like USDC, and established world-scale payment networks like Visa and WorldPay. That's powerful. And we want to continue building that. The, the point I would also add just about the, the CBDC deposit token stablecoin debate is that oftentimes it, it, it really distracts from the real issue. The real issue is payment networks and payment systems that at the end of the day are device-centric. If every internet device on the planet can become a compliant payment endpoint, then the token that you're sending, the cryptographic token that you're sending as a representation of value matters much less than the fact that these networks start to speak to one another and have interoperability. Uh, so, so I think the, the, the example that we're describing so far is really a powerful example of interoperability. And it is, in, my, in many ways, just the, the end of the beginning, to quote Winston Churchill. There's a lot that comes uh, in the next chapter. No, that's interesting. And, and Visa is building on you know, a number of, of different pilots and projects, some of which have made headlines. This one builds on top of, say, um, the pilot with Crypto.com and expands on those results. Uh, Catherine, you've been involved into all of these uh, the pilots. How do you see, you know, what were the results that indicated that this should take a more central or wider space on, on the roadmap for Visa's uh, crypto expansion? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great question. And it goes back to the bread and butter of what Visa does, really, because, you know, we're here to really facilitate the money movement. And it doesn't really matter what type of money is more that we want to make it easier for issuers and inquirers to accept and receive those money. So, you know, as part of the crypto.com that we started a few years back, that's that long roadmap towards modernizing a lot of the flows to do with, say, cross-border payments and such. So the crypto.com one started because, you know, there was 
an original preference coming from the crypto card holders that prefer to settle in USDC. And we responded to that demand by testing this solution, which is really, to Kai's point, is a backhand to do with what Visa's treasury can modernize and we make it available to crypto.com. And I think there's a lot of good lessons learned in the sense of what are the key benefits coming from that. So just to quote some numbers, for example, in terms of the pre-funding needs, previously it was about eight days. And because of the USDC settlement, we reduce it down by 50% down to four days, which is significant. There's also the fact that in, in terms of the cost for the FX exchange rate and such, we brought it down by about 20 to 30 bips. And so you can imagine now we're heading towards this always on infrastructure to allow someone to receive these monies close to real time, which is a lot more better than what today's infrastructure can support. And in turn, it really allows people like crypto.com to therefore to focus more on their day-to-day you know, treasury uh, operation and management. So overall, I think this is representing something of an efficiency gain that through different sort of just little bit bit of a baby steps, I would say, of improvement on those infrastructures, we can make the system a lot more integratable and interoperable as well. So yeah. Yeah, I like the focus on efficiencies and cutting down, you know, large, you know, swaths of time to make everything more efficient and and obviously cheaper to operate and, it, you know, with everything that, you know, blockchains can offer in terms of transparency is also something to kind of strive for. Mina, you're with WorldPay. WorldPay has been, you know, touching on crypto and doing experimentations for quite a while, even you know before engaging in this uh, recent project with Visa. So how do you compare the work being done before that and now the work that you're you know, building with Visa? And, and obviously, uh, in terms of proposition, is this something that with, you know, is only now possible with stable coins? How do you see, you know, the interaction between what is now available and what were the experimentations you were doing before? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to touch on that. And I think before I jump into what WorldPay was doing for USDC settlement before the announcement with Visa, what's really important for the audience to understand, which I think Kai touched on a little bit earlier, is how fiat money flows work today. So just to level set there, when a consumer makes a payment for a good or service, either on an e-commerce platform or via point of sale that consumer's funds actually transfers from their bank, which we call the issuing bank in the industry, over to a player like Visa, which we call a scheme. And then Visa's bank would transfer it over to WorldPay. And then WorldPay would do what we call last mile settlement, which is when the merchant actually receives the value of the funds that the consumer paid for. And these are this is what we call the four-point model. And what WorldPay was doing in USDC settlement or stablecoin settlement prior to the announcement with Visa was giving merchants the option to have that last mile settlement in stablecoin, namely USDC. So in that scenario, the fiat funds would flow through exactly the same way as they were before. Visa would settle to WorldPay in fiat, and then WorldPay would give the merchant the option to have that last mile settlement over the blockchain. What's happening now is one additional leg of that funds flow lifecycle has converted into blockchain or stablecoin settlement. So when the consumer's issuing bank sends the fiat over to Visa, Visa is able to convert that to stablecoin and send it over to WorldPay, and WorldPay can send over those same stablecoins to the merchant. And where this adds value is, I would say, three key levers add value to the system. The first is faster flows. So 
Traditionally, we would rely on payment rails that can take a couple of days to transfer that money from Visa's bank over to WorldPay's bank. Now we can do that instantly. Second is, I think it removes the reliance on third-party bank partners and their appetite for higher-risk sectors. And I think one of the biggest uh, incumbents to the growth and adoption of crypto we've seen globally is banks aren't always comfortable accepting those flow of funds. So if you're a cryptocurrency exchange and you're trying to accept consumer payments, that bank that you bank with may not be comfortable funneling those funds through their systems and platforms. So if you remove that reliance on a traditional bank and a traditional payment network over to a digital wallet, suddenly you have the control of funds and you can determine for yourself what your appetite is and which sectors you want to support and why based on a number of different reasons. So I think that's the second big um, additional, I think, improvement in the in the funds flow and money movement. And then I think last, it, it's the longer term signaling of where the market is moving. I think one of the original thesis for the blockchain and cryptocurrency was for payments. And I think an end goal could be seen as you know, the entire life cycle I described being funneled with stablecoin because the clear benefits are transparency, there's cost savings, there's efficiency for the for the merchant and all the players involved to adopt the distributed ledger technology. So it signals that there is real potential for a shift and improvement in how we move money around the world today. It's all about the efficiency. Now, as, as uh, Kat was saying, right, variety of money or monies that we can have that in plural now because the modalities are different. Turning on to you, Dante, we, we did speak about stablecoins last week. Can you help us understand the basic difference between stablecoins such as USDC and what CBDCs are emerging now? Because I know there are similarities because they're all types of digital money, but let, let us explore a little bit of this compare and contrast between these two kind of categories. Sure. And, and candidly, in the remarks that you've heard so far from both Kat and Mina, you, you have the stablecoin, why does it matter answer, right? That, that in many respects, most of the world's payments innovations, even world-scaled networks, are oftentimes innovations in sending debit and credit instructions to counterparty financial institutions. And so what we could get is what we, in many respects, have today, marginally improving faster debit and credit instructions. But to Kai's point, uh, the job of a company like Visa and a network like Visa is to give the end user the abstraction of all of the things that actually go in the background, the pipes and the plumbing. So my analogy is nobody cares about the plumbing in their house until they can't flush their toilet. <laughs> and all of a sudden you're, you're calling, you're phoning it in, you become an expert. The financial plumbing of the world is not interoperable. It's not particularly fast. And in many respects, unfortunately, those are the features that protect and preserve incumbency or to Mina's points, for certain sectors to be hard to bank or are entirely unbankable. The stablecoin, by contrast, and this is a feature of blockchain-based financial services, is an instrument that allows for the transmission with effectively the sending and receiving instructions, you're transmitting the bearer instrument. So once the sender and the receiver have consummated the transaction, it's settled, period. And yes, it's experimental still. Yes, we're seeing the types of uh, progress being made by WorldPay and Visa and many other networks around the world in integrating this innovation. But the implications are deeply profound in terms of settlement finality and settlement speeds. The other thing that I think is really critical, and this is one of the reasons Circle is an omni-chain company. We're not picking one winner and loser in the blockchain ecosystem. We're trying to develop and design USDC 
as a price-stable, price-constant digital dollar across all of these networks. Today, soon, we'll be at 15 blockchains with native USDC. That is to ensure that there's constantly upgradable financial markets infrastructure or the rails on which the innovation lies as well. Because if this is an internet of value that we're talking about, it might very well still be in its dial-up phase. And if you want to see the dial-up to broadband jump in the underlying rails of how this type of digital money can move, then you want to be able to support sort of an open multi-chain environment as a feature, not a bug. And so I think that's the, the, that's the main point about the rails. The CBDC question is, up, other than the large experiment from the People's Bank of China with the ECNY, uh, much of the rest of the world's CBDC experiments are just that. They're still very experimental. And I think central bankers are right in thinking through how do they protect and preserve the two-tiered banking system? And if such an innovation were to be issued, how does it interoperate with public and private actors? I think those boundaries are going to be really important to protect and preserve. Absolutely. Now, in terms of uh, infrastructure, we know that you know stable coins are by and large crypto-based, blockchain-based uh, infrastructure. CBDCs are not necessarily. We're seeing decentralized CBDCs as much as we're seeing uh, largely centralized CBDCs, uh, especially because the name of the currency is central bank digital currency. That would be you know very logical to think about. But there's the question of interoperability. And, and when we talk about crypto, there's also the discussion about self-sovereignty, right? Self-custody and all the self-referencing uh, nature of uh, the, the blockchain, right? Kat, from your experimentations on protocols and, and whatnot, so what implications do you see in terms of interoperability? Let's say the CBCs become a thing and start to you know, emerge as, a, as Dante said, a, a means to protect the two-tier banking system. What are the implications on interoperability or even in pegging, right, in maintaining the peg between what would be a fiat denomination in digital currency issued by a central authority and then the counterpart on a public decentralized stablecoin sourced from those CBDCs? Yeah, I think there's a lot to unpack in that. Uh, firstly, like definitely agree with Dante because there's so many experimentations and very few that are live. And the ones that are live, we're seeing that the adoption rate is struggling in that sense. Like I think maybe first starting with the technology choice. Certainly, a lot of the central banks are exploring the usage of DLT. Now, the word D in that DLT is really standing for distributed, not necessarily decentralized. And to your point, given it is central bank digital currencies, it is very important from a governance perspective that you know the central bank will be able to kind of lay out the policies that in the future hopefully directly embedded into those programs and smart contracts. And hence, what we're seeing from the central banks as they're exploring around CBDC, I would say it's a mix of different solution types. Some of the central banks are actually just not you know, using anything related to blockchains. And that could still work. It really depends on the objectives of what they're trying to achieve. There's certainly other central banks, such as you mentioned about the DREX in Brazil, in which, for example, they're using Hyperledger Bezu, uh, which is a private sort of version that's very keen to Ethereum. Now, I think for those that are a lot more interesting, mainly coming from that future interoperability perspective, because we understand that, you know, there needs to be a balance in terms of the sovereignty, the permissioning and the control versus the ecosystem that you want to access to. And what we're seeing more and more is this emergence of many different central banks or financial institutions 
who are looking at sort of private or permission settings of these public blockchains in the hope that, you know, there could be some, say, bridges and such in the future. You can connect between these two um, different sort of pockets of liquidity and, and so on. So I think that's interesting. And uh, I do, coming back to the network of network strategy for Visa, I think it is very profound in many ways because ultimately, you know, um, all the DLT technology we're seeing there is great. But I think ultimately the question to answer is what's the use case, right? And therefore, with that use case, how you can then enable them to be achieved. So we know that a lot of the DLTs being created today is not by default interoperable with one another. And therefore, going back to that plumbing, someone really needs to build out the right infrastructure, having the right standards and rules being injected into the ecosystem. Because ultimately, if we want to scale up any payments, you should have the choice to decide on what technology to build, but you should also you know, very well defined the interoperability scheme that flows in between that. And this is where Visa, I think, really puts a lot of effort. You know, our team is spending a lot of time working through what are some of the innovations that we can create, connecting between different blockchains, but also connecting between existing payment rails with blockchain as well, which is very crucial. To give some concrete example, about a year or so ago, we released this research paper called Universal Payment Channels. And it's really looking into one specific application of a cryptographic primitive to apply that into the payment use case. Uh, Specifically, you know, we're testing, for example, how we can make an interoperable transaction between a CBDC, a simulated CBDC to a stablecoin, and to enable a bunch of use cases connecting between different markets. And we actually tested that during the Brazil Lift Challenge. So I think you know, coming back to the original question, there's still a lot more that need to be done and tested. And I think, you know, there's no one size fits all. So you're going to have a lot of interoperable solutions. But the key is that as the entire ecosystem operate, we need a standard sort of approach to these problems. Having the standards, the scheme, the rules are going to be very critical as much as the infrastructure that we build out for these. Standards are critical. And so is collaboration. I mean, thinking about the effort to put out whatever program in terms of a CBDC, It's not only governments, the whole industry, academia, suppliers of many kinds, both technology and otherwise. I mean, the amount of lawyers involved in this is remarkable as well. So, Mina, what do you think about this relationship? How do you think these balance between public and private and various uh, layers of participation, how do you think that they're going to pan out in terms of establishing this interoperable world that, you know, kind of cat kind of described for us. Yeah, happy to speak to that. On the merchant front or on the payment processor front, we do have an investment and partnership with M10, who's building out our blockchain infrastructure that we plan to partner with other central banks to enable CBDCs. Less about the permission versus not permissioned. I think one of the challenges that we're seeing in CBDC versus stablecoin adoption is infrastructure overall. So there's a ton of existing hardware, for example, and physical infrastructure that is fit for purpose for fiat acceptance. And there's going to be a huge technology overhaul that would be required if on the merchant side, CBDCs are used, regardless of the type of blockchain that they use. Um, There's also follow-on effects in terms of reconciliation. It's a different type of currency, essentially, and how do you reconcile or account for your existing fiat payments alongside CBDC payments or stablecoin payments? What I do think is there is a lot of similarity in the infrastructure that you build for stablecoins and that that you would need for CBDCs. So given we've seen stablecoins take the charge 
in with respect to Web2 or large institutional player adoption. And there's been a lot of regulation around what is acceptable for stable coins. I think that facilitates or paves the way a little bit for CBDC adoption. Because if you have, for example, large capital markets players or hedge funds, just large payment institutions, for example, that are adopting stablecoin technology and stablecoin infrastructure, should there be a mandate for CBDC adoption, um, a lot of that infrastructure would be in, in place. So I think the challenges or the more important question from the merchant or payment processing or acquirer standpoint is more around the infrastructure um, and less around the permission versus the permissionless blockchains. Well, that's a lot. Let's take a quick pause to hear from our sponsors and we'll be back very shortly. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibilities and Visa is helping everyone take part. Consumers can now enjoy the freedom and flexibility of using their Visa crypto link cards for everyday purchases at millions of Visa-accepting merchant locations around the world. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. Looking to take your customer journeys to the next level and benchmark your products against the best in financial services? Well, look no further than 11FS Pulse. Home to over 5,700 user journeys covering everything from onboarding to crypto, it features analysis of global brands like Nubank, Revolut, and Robinhood. It's already tried and trusted by big names like Monzo, whose co-founder Jonas said their research phase took just a tenth of the time it normally would, thanks to 11FS Pulse. Join Monzo and hundreds of other brands taking their UX game to the next level by booking a demo today at 11fspulse.com forward slash demo. That's 11fspulse.com forward slash demo. So welcome back. We're, we're kind of wrapping up the conversation about the differences between CBDCs and stablecoins, but there is a very particular piece of this discussion, which means how many blockchains can we withstand? So Kai, want to, you know, kind of explore that a little bit. Yeah, I, I think one interesting observation that we've seen is stablecoins are, are very much this bottoms-up technology where there's this incredibly competitive ecosystem of different blockchains that have different properties and different programming languages and different features. And so from a developer perspective, you know, while it's still really early days, and you know, Dante mentioned supporting 15 different blockchains, like, will we need 15? We don't know. But when you're looking for use cases and you're still in the early stages of a new technology, having that amount of choice for developers to be able to experiment with, I, I think is a, a really interesting environment. On the other side, I think CBDC tends to be a lot more top down. And so I think one of the challenges for CBDC is, you know, again, you're still, there is no killer use case of a single thing for it. And so how do you decide you know, what the right technology is and then make that decision and get everyone to adopt it. And so we've heard this, this concept that's getting more and more popularity around the universal ledger. And, you know, can you, wouldn't it be great if everything just ran on one network? And so Dante, here's how you're thinking about like this contrast between many different blockchains, but the token flowing across them, or can central bankers and policymakers 
align on one network that can then serve all of those potential use cases? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a very fair question. And when the uh, Bank for International Settlements announced this concept of a unified shared ledger, I couldn't help but dust off my Libra white paper and think of it as, well, look, look, it turns out it's not a bad idea. The purpose in my mind of the multi-chain environment is earlier in my last sort of response, I described this concept of an internet of value that eventually would connect um, individual endpoints in a network and allow those endpoints to interact with one another and with sort of other operators on the network. In many respects, the central bank digital currency conversation, by very by the virtue of central banking, which is to run a domestic payment system, a domestic banking system, or a domestic monetary union, the best we could expect is an intranet of value among a sort of central bank's particular geography or sovereign area. When central banks or other sort of institutions start plugging into one another, then we're talking about an extranet of value. And many of the central bank to central bank digital currency experiments are just that, Project Enbridge, Mariana, and many others in that category, in my mind, are an extranet of value because the counterparties know each other and the terms of their financial or economic connections are known through modernizing the pipes. I still think there's this place, this missing link, the bottoms up part that you described, Kai, which requires a genuinely open internet-like ledger. Public blockchains are solving for that. But here's the other thing that we often, um, we shouldn't forget in digital currency conversation. It's not enough to have a unified shared ledger that could record the transactions and who is the owner of an asset. We also have to ensure that you add for programmability and composability of money. And so the Bitcoin blockchain was a very powerful innovation on ledgering things, but not a particularly powerful innovation in terms of transaction throughput just yet. The Ethereum blockchain adds programmability through smart contracts, and every other blockchain ecosystem since is making marginal improvements on the latter generation's chain. And I think incorporating that constant upgradability for programmability and composability of money is a really powerful thing. Now, the visas and the world pays of the world are incredibly well-placed to be the abstraction layer that allows those innovations to kind of sit in the background because the risk cannot be borne by the retail user, the customer, or the counterparty who merely wants a payment outcome. Most people around the world don't know how the internet works and haven't had a conversation about routers, software, and hardware for a pretty long time. But in the blockchain world, we're still talking about hardware and software and jargon as opposed to the outcomes that people want, which is better, faster, cheaper payments. And I think this tech stack is a part of the puzzle. Interesting. We, we kind of glanced at it, but, but that kind of goes back to this point you made, which is also use case dependent. What types of problems we're solving? We have a variety of technologies that will solve them differently. So let me turn to you, Mina, in terms of, you know, as WorldPay is a fit for purpose in the infrastructure, how do you see this coming with the offer of stablecoins and CBDCs to handle the use cases that you cater to, you know, at the last mile. Yeah, absolutely. And just to tag along to what Kai and Dante were talking about with respect to interoperability, in crypto and blockchain, interoperability, typically we discuss it to, to define how two different blockchains will interact with each other. But I think given we sit on a web two or a payment processor perspective, interoperability for us is also technology interoperability and that, that could be between existing fiat infrastructure and cryptocurrency infrastructure. So one of the key challenges for the introduction of a new payment system is to define use cases and to ensure 
a more frictionless integration with the existing infrastructure. So, for example, a CBDC would ideally be embedded and fully integrated with the existing point of sale devices and also digital wallets. So Apple Pay, for example, it should be possible to access a CBDC deposit in aggregate with wallets accessible through both mobile applications and your browser. Um, so this is, for example, a mandate in open banking today, which hasn't yet been fulfilled. And I think it'll help drive the adoption and help combat the key driver for CBDCs, which is financial exclusion. So we might be able to see the introduction of new technologies and ensure that they're compatible with our existing products and services so that we can have a faster rollout. And I think a second, a second type of interoperability that comes to mind is in how we handle conversions today. So for our merchants around the world, for example, cross-border payments or international payment acceptance is critical. So you might see a consumer in one jurisdiction make a, make a payment in point of sale in currency X, but the merchant that they're paying might want to be settled in currency Y. So I think if a CBDC only supports domestic payments or is ring-fenced in one particular country, that's definitely going to limit wide-scale adoption, I would say. And while currencies today can be easily converted and settled cross-border with existing FX service providers, CBDCs should consider in their design mechanisms uh, technology infrastructure to enable cross-border payments at scale as well. And I think this is just critical in economies around the world, as we've seen e-commerce be the main mechanism with which consumers are making payments today. So I think those two existing infrastructure and technology with point-of-sale devices and technology, as well as with having a mechanism to ensure that you can do payments at scale across borders are the key considerations that we should look at with CBDC adoption. Yeah, good tips to central bank architects that are tagging along on this on this journey. Kat, you're working with consensus on some of this kind of abstraction for CBDC so banks could do just the work that they need to do in, in that regard. Is there any information at this stage that you can share about the development of those uh, kind of abstraction points? Yeah, so the work that we did with Consensus was back around 2020 and 2021. So we partnered together in the uh, what's is called the Global CBDC Challenge back in the days that was hosted by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. And it was a really interesting, one of the first actually, when it comes to the CBDC adoption, because they raised some really valid points. For example, you know, in terms of solving for challenges of adoption, solving for challenges of interoperability and the compatibility backward compatibility, so to speak, with existing payment rails, what can you do? And so the solution that we have jointly come up with, which is really using at a time consensus codified payment platform, is to simulate a CBDC. And on top of which, we created a, a Visa's CBDC linked card that could support these payments for retail usages. And we demonstrated that backward compatibility with it. And I want to come back kind of reflecting on this big conversation about CBDC because, you know, that was back in two, three years ago when CBDC was just really becoming to fashion. But I think now the debate or conversation is a lot more nuanced in the sense, you know, when we're talking about CBDC, what exactly is it? Is it a retail focused CBDC? Is it a wholesale CBDC? Because depends on which path that goes, the underlying infrastructure will have to look very different. And of course, the use cases as well. 
And again, you know, are we looking only for domestic kind of being the main use case? What is cross-border the dominant use case? And that, again, will reflect back into the design principles. So I think tying back to more of our recent activities and, you know, we're having all these constant conversations with 40 plus central banks. I do see that there's a shift in terms of the sentiment on the number of pilots they're doing and the focus that they're exploring, because if originally CBDC's experimentation is more responding to, say, stable coins emergence and hence looking in around retail CBDC like we've seen in China, I would say more recently we're seeing this rise of wholesale CBDC experimentation, coupling that with a two-tier system that we're talking about, coupling with that, letting the financial institutions, letting the tradfies and the banks to then build things on top of that wholesale CBDC infrastructure. So I think the word of tokenized bank deposits is something that increasingly we're hearing more and more about, uh, whether there could be a coexistence between stable coins, tokenized bank deposits, surfing for the payments use case, but you have the wholesale CBDC really serving on the settlement part of things between the central banks uh, settling against one another. And to that effect, I think for Visa more recently, you know, we are currently involved in two live pilots. One is in Hong Kong in the uh, EHKD pilot. So there we're working with our banking partners to really simulate the CBDC, but to help the banks to create these programmable payment tokens um, for tokenized deposits that's hopefully going to be closely compatible with all the EVM standards and rules. And we're similarly involved in the Brazil tracks with our partner there trying to explore the, um, the sort of capabilities and use case. Now, one thing that even in the, the DRAX space that I've been following and, and across most of the conversations we've had in this podcast, there's also the degree of openness that is kind of intrinsic to crypto, right? It's public blockchains, open data, all of that good stuff. But there's also a lot of concern about privacy, especially across the board, even, even in the wholesale CBDC space, what a bank can see from the other bank as they do things, you know, between them and the central bank are also uh, some of those things that kind of, they're not yet concerning because these are pilot, but they are uh, something to, to cater to. Uh, Kai, uh, on, on your perspective, I mean, we, we've been, nerding out about, you know, open, open permissionless CRMs and NFT episodes and all of that stuff. But when it comes to the monetary side of things or the over-financialization of the infrastructure, these things come at a cost, right? So how do you feel CBDCs can address those concerns or even stable coins in that scenario? Because we, you know, we saw Constitution DAO being front run by someone who outbid them because the balances were all known. And that in financial services at times, and even in commerce, are very strategic pieces of information. How do you see this thing about privacy you know, evolving in the next few rounds of evolution between CBDCs and stablecoins? Yeah, I, I'd argue privacy is one of the biggest and most important challenges for the entire space right now, uh, particularly with, with stablecoins. I think the, the benefit of public blockchains is that they exist. You know, they're there. You know, you can build on top of them. You could transfer value. You don't have to set up a consortium and you know spend three years to to try and stand it up. It's this always on infrastructure. The downside is that you know other people can see the activity, uh, and I think that that's going to be a significant barrier. And so one of the questions that I've had is like, you know, are we going to see scalability be solved? Which I think it has been and is continuing to be. It's very clear at this point, you know, that if if you say blockchains will never scale, you know, people are going to look at you and kind of laugh and not take you seriously. 
there are many different approaches to blockchain scaling. As blockchain scale, is privacy going to be solved at the same time? Or are a bunch of people going to start using blockchains and then realize, oh, this was a lot more public uh, than we thought? On the other hand, with CBDC and tokenized deposits, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, you could create a permission blockchain. And in a permission blockchain, you, know, you can have some privacy you know, controls that might be easier to implement from a technical perspective. But then the challenge is you're building brand new infrastructure from the ground up. And I think that the the decisions that have to be made and some of the challenges and coordination of building a permission blockchain, that does not happen quickly and easily. And so I think we have to find you know, middle grounds in between and ways that you can leverage public blockchain infrastructure, but you can add privacy preserving you know, layers to it. You can still you know, control for compliance and you can have scalability. And I feel like that's kind of the holy grail that once we get there, and I think that it's not just going to be one network, There'll be multiple networks with different options for different levels of privacy and scalability. Then you can see you know, stablecoins you know, really you know, take off in, in some of these use cases. And, and it's kind of which is going to get there faster, the top-down you know, approach, building brand new permission networks, or the bottoms-up approach, evolving and building layers on top of the existing public ones. Uh, and I think it's great to have this competition you know, happening you know, across you know, both of them. That's the beauty of open source software. And uh, I think what we're seeing is ZK cryptography is going to come and will give us a leg up in being able to have public blockchains with configurable confidentiality, which then kind of blends all together. Jesus Christ, we're at the hour. Um, and I'm going to wrap up because I mean, this, this, this will never end. I'd love this. We could just stay here the whole day, but we can't. So thanks uh, all of you for joining us today. Uh, where can people find more about you and your companies? I'm going to start with you, Dante. Sure. Uh, circle.com. We got the domain name and we've had it for a while. So that's where you can <laughs> learn everything about Circle, USDC, and the fun stuff that we're doing. And then I'm, I'm available on the open internet as well. <laughs> Great. Mina, how about you? Yeah, a quick Google search of WorldPay, you'll get to our website. Um, we publicize a lot about our work in crypto and Web3. But if you have any questions about that, I'm a good person to contact. You can find me on Telegram at Mina Katak, or I'm also quite active on LinkedIn. Great. Kat? Yeah, similar to both guests uh, available on the open internet, but definitely do check out on the uh, Visa's crypto page. We have this tab called Thought Leadership, and this is where we really publish a lot of the ongoing research around protocols. Great. Kai? That's visa.com slash crypto. And Kai Sheffield on Twitter or x.com. Oh, great. You can find me on x at 0x Mauricio on LinkedIn, Mauricio Magali, and on 11fs.com. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We have loads in the works, and we're so excited to be talking about crypto and blockchain with all of you. If you can't wait until the next episode, take a look at the many previous episodes on your catalog and get yourself properly immersed in the world of crypto. And if you really love it, please leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps other people find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Blockchain Insider or email us at podcasts at 11FS.com. This is all for today. Stay rare, stay weird. LFG.